We began last Wednesday a two-part study of the life of the Old Testament King Josiah, and tonight, Lord willing, we're going to complete it. So let me invite you to turn once again to the book of Second Chronicles and once more to chapter 34. Second Chronicles 34, and we'll take up our reading in a few moments in verse 8. But before we do, let's just pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, we do just come to you tonight praising you for your kindness, the kindnesses that um, were voiced back to you um, this evening already, and your kindness in giving us your word, your kindness in giving us your spirit to help us understand your word. And we pray now that you would grant that the Holy Spirit would come and help us understand your word again tonight, understand what it's saying and how it applies, and have open hearts to really embrace how it applies in our lives and to believe. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So you may recall from last week that amidst a string of very wicked kings, idolatrous kings who reigned in Jerusalem in the last century or so before God's people were carried away into Babylonian exile, you may remember that amidst a succession of those very ungodly kings who brought about the end of Judah's Old Testament monarchy, there was stuck in between them one very good king. Indeed, in some ways we might say that King Josiah may have been the best king that ever reigned in Old Testament Jerusalem. Josiah was a good king, clearing the land of idolatry so prevalent among his predecessors and reinstituted under his successors. He did right in the sight of the Lord, verses 2 and 3, and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right Or to the left, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images. Josiah was a good king, among the best of kings. And you may also remember that good King Josiah was a very young king, eight years old, when he came to the throne, sixteen When he was converted, verse 3, 20, when he began ridding the land of idols, and still only 26, when he began the work of repairing the temple of God, which we read about last week in verse 8. And it's with that repairing of the temple that we pick up Josiah's story again tonight in verse 8. Now, In the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Messiah, an official of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. They came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the doorkeepers, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim, and from all the remnant of Israel, and from all Judah and Benjamin and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then they gave it into the hands of the workmen who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord used it to restore and repair the house. They in turn gave it to the carpenters and to the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for couplings and to make beams for the houses which the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. 
The men did the work faithfully with foremen over them to supervise. Jahath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Merari, Zechariah and Meshulam of the sons of the Kohathites, and the Levites, all who were skillful with musical instruments. They were also over the burden bearers and supervised all the workmen from job to job. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. Now, when we read there about carpenters and beams and quarried stone and foremen, you get the idea that this was no small project. This wasn't a spring work day down at the church building. This was a major renovation of the temple. And the question in our minds, perhaps, is how could a building so grand and so important as the Jerusalem temple have gotten to a place where it needed such a major renovation project? How could it have gotten that bad? Well, part of the answer may simply be that every building experiences wear and tear, right? Even our own building here, which is not nearly as old as the temple was, even this building is always presenting us with maintenance projects, isn't it? We never seem to be able to get them all caught up because there's always something more that needs to be done. And if you let such things go for too long, verse 11, eventually you have a major project on your hands. But there is something more significant to that, uh, to add to that. You add to the idea that all buildings have wear and tear, the fact that for most of the last two monarchs' reigns, spanning 57 years between them, for most of the reigns of Josiah's father and grandfather, the worship of God was very lightly regarded, if not ignored altogether. And so, with so little concern for the God to whom it belonged we can see how the temple could have fallen into even further disrepair than a building that constantly has people coming in and out of it. Just like some of the old church buildings that you may see around town, whose pulpits, I suspect, no longer preach a robust biblical gospel and whose pews are therefore largely empty and whose crumbling buildings reflect the fact that there are only a few people remaining who see that building as any sort of spiritual home for them and the building falls into disrepair and something like that was going on in Jerusalem now make no mistake the outward repair of a modern building church building is no sure sign of what sort of spiritual life exists within its walls a lively church may for financial geographical reasons have a very unflattering meeting place and on the flip side of the coin a dazzling building is no sure sign that their spiritual life inside. But a crumbling building may sometimes be a sign that there are very few people left who care about the message that was once proclaimed inside of it. And if that's true today when buildings are very secondary in the purposes of God, how much more so does the crumbling temple in the days of old depict what was going on with the people who were supposed to worship there. The temple was the meeting place between God and its people, and the fact that it was falling apart shows where the people were spiritually. And so here's Josiah, after all these years of physical neglect of the temple and spiritual neglect in the people's hearts, and he has a major renovation project on his hands, on two fronts. The people were in need of spiritual reformation, and the temple was in need of its own physical repair as well. And so in verses 8 through 13, Josiah embarked on this project to get the house of God back in order. 
And praise God, verse 9, the people of Judah and Jerusalem and even beyond opened their pocketbooks to fund the project. So here's a sign that God was rebuilding and renovating hearts and not just buildings, that the people had a heart to give. And it was when the collection box was being emptied one day that something very important was stumbled upon by Hilkiah, who was the high priest. And I want us to read about what he found as he was gathering the money for the reparations in the temple. When they were bringing out, of the, bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Then Shaphan brought the book to the king and reported further word to the king, saying, Everything that was entrusted to your servants they are doing. They have also emptied out the money which was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hands of the supervisors and the workmen. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Now those few verses point us to our first heading this evening, namely a book. The first thing I want you to remember from this passage is a book. If you think it is startling that the temple could have fallen into disrepair the way it obviously did under Josiah's predecessors, How amazing is it that the book, the word of God written down by Moses and preserved to this day in the first five books of the Bible, how amazing is it that the book of the law itself could have fallen into almost total oblivion? Hilkiah the priest in verse 14 seems at least to have realized what book it was that had turned up during the temple renovations. But when it was presented to the king in verse 18, it was described to him simply as a book. A book. Which leads me to wonder if perhaps Shaphan, who actually delivered the book to Josiah, didn't think that the king would actually recognize it. He didn't go to Josiah and say, we found the book of the law. He didn't say, hey, we found the writings of Moses. Perhaps because those book titles may not have meant much at all to Josiah. For the moment, Shaphan simply describes it as a book. And even if Josiah knew about this book, his reaction upon hearing it read in verse 19 seems to to indicate that he had never read the book. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. He was so troubled by what was in there that they weren't doing And so here's a book that for the people of Israel served at one and the same time as an explanation for the origin of the world, as the national archives of their early history, as the nation's ethical code, as her spiritual food, and as her national constitution. And all of it given to them not simply by their great founding father Moses, but by God himself. And you would think that that would be the most important possession that they would have, perhaps. 
And yet it would appear that Josiah had lived 26 years of his life, 18 of them as king on the throne, and a good king, a godly king at that. And yet he'd never heard, maybe never even heard of this book. It's amazing to think about, is it not? Josiah seems to have known enough about the things of God to have done many good things even before being made aware of this book, but he never seems to have read it himself. And we may wonder how that can be. How can the Bible, in its earliest form, have been almost lost to the very people to whom it was given? John MacArthur suggests that Perhaps the wicked king Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, had all the known copies of it burned. And I suppose that's as good a suggestion as any. But somehow, this one copy at least slipped through the cracks. Maybe it was just overlooked, buried away as it was in this neglected old temple. Or maybe, as Matthew Henry has suggested, maybe some good men hid it away for safekeeping. But it's astonishing to think that the written word of God could have so utterly fallen out of the consciousnesses of the people of Judah that their king would not even know what it said. Astonishing, but perhaps not altogether surprising for those of us who have even more world history to look back on. Some of you will know that something very similar happened in the Middle Ages in Europe. God's book finally given to mankind in its final form in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. God's book in the Middle Ages was largely lost to the very European churches to whom it had been so graciously bequeathed by God. By its policy that the Bible should only be read in Latin and by the fact that many a commoner couldn't speak Latin, the Bible was completely shrouded from the common person's view by the Roman Catholic Church. And then, of course, by a policy uh, in which it was supposedly the church's job and the church's job alone to interpret the Bible, access to it became even more remote to the average churchgoers. I can't read it because it's in Latin, and I don't need to read it because that's the church's job. They'll tell me what to do. And so many a person probably went from the cradle to the grave in the Middle Ages right under the nose of all things religious, but having little or no idea at all what was written inside this book. And because church tradition came to take its place alongside and often above the scriptures, one suspects that even many church leaders, priests and monks and so on, had probably scarcely any idea of the book's contents either. But then, five and more centuries ago, the book was rediscovered. Not in the same way, of course, as it was rediscovered in Josiah's day, because in the Middle Ages, the problem wasn't one of access to physical copies. But during the days of the Enlightenment, there was a renewed interest in reading the old books in their original languages, including the New Testament. And so scholars began reading the New Testament in the original Greek. And one of them, a man called Erasmus, produced a published copy in the original Greek. And this caught the attention of many other educated men, some of whom began to really read the text of the New Testament and to understand what it teaches about Jesus and about the church and about salvation and about so many things that they'd been taught wrongly for so many years. And they began to be convinced that the common man needed to have this book. In his own language. And so Tyndale produced his English Bible, determined that a plowboy 
would have as much access to the word of God as a priest. And Luther translated the Bible into German and others followed suit in other languages. And the result was that for scholars and common people alike, the cry could be heard all throughout Europe, I have found the book. And here was the seedbed of the Protestant Reformation, the fruit of which we enjoy down to this very evening. The word of God, for most practical purposes, was almost altogether lost by the people who had the greatest access to it. But by God's grace, it was pulled from the cobwebs of devilish Roman Catholic tradition, and it was handed back over to the people of God so that we are reading from it in our own language even tonight. But I suggest to you that this isn't all just historical. It's not just in the Old Testament, not just in the Middle Ages that the book was in danger of being lost. I suggest to you that we need to take heed to these things, lest the Bible in some ways be buried beneath the cobwebs again in our own day. Not by burning, as may have happened under Manasseh, not by systematic policies to keep it out of people's hands, but today... As I think about it, I worry that the book is buried beneath the noisy gongs and clanging cymbals of modern-day entertainment culture within the church. Some of you may not realize this because you're in these pews every week, but not every church actually takes time to really read from this book when they gather together week by week. Many is a church that you could enter this weekend and go 30 to 45 minutes into the service without a single quotation from the Bible at all. Singing, yes. Skits, perhaps. Multimedia, probably. But you might wait an awful long time before anyone actually cracked open this book and just read it aloud. And then even when the sermon begins, there's little guarantee in many places that it will be strongly anchored in the Bible either. Many times it will just be a self-help talk with a verse sprinkled in here and there, but in which it's clear at the end that the preacher's plan and not the words on the page are shaping the direction of the message. And so what I'm saying is you can attend many a church today, many an evangelical church, where they would claim to believe many of the same things that we believe, and yet you could walk away having had very little encounter at all with this book. And people who worship like that, mostly detached from the word of God, will live like that, too. When they come for their personal devotions, they will choose flowery devotional books instead of the word of God. They will follow emotional impressions instead of basing their life decisions on the word of God. They will listen to what they think are promptings of the Holy Spirit instead of going to the book that the Holy Spirit has written. And they will peddle other people's alleged visions of heaven and hell instead of reading what the Bible says infallibly about those things. And I say all of this to you not to throw other churches or Christians under the bus, but to say to you that the evangelical culture around us is one that we need in some ways to be wary of because so much of what is called Christianity today has very little solid basis in the book. And it seems to me that that is trending only in the wrong direction. And we need to pray that the book of the law will be found once again by those to whom it has been given as a special treasure. We need to pray for a return to the Bible in our evangelical churches, some of us perhaps in our own lives. Someone has wisely pointed out that while evangelical Christians and churches waged a great battle 
with theological liberals to defend the principle that the Bible really is God's word and that it really is without error, but that now we need to actually begin to live like we believe that. A great battle was waged to say this is the word of God. This is the inerrant, infallible word of God. But if it is, are we going to actually use it? Our worship services and other public gatherings and personal reading habits and theological convictions need to reflect that we actually believe that the Bible really is the word of God and the source for truth for the world and that it should take precedence over the entertainment that too many goats in sheep's clothing are clamoring for in the churches. And when Josiah discovered the book of the law, he was dead serious about what it said, wasn't he? And we must be too. Look at how serious he was about what was in the book. Verse 19, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Abdon the son of Micah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book which has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had told went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokoth, the son of Hasra, the keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her regarding this. She said to him, to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the curses written in the book which they have read in the presence of the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands, therefore my wrath will be poured out on this place, and it shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you will say to him, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, And you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. So your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Here's the effect of the word of God. It brought trembling to the one who heard it, namely Josiah. And it drove him to seek the Lord in repentance. And the Lord granted mercy and heard his prayer. And that's how the word of God works with us, isn't it? When we hear it and hear it well. That's why I have to keep preaching to you the hard things Sunday by Sunday and Wednesday by Wednesday. Because the word of God often needs to bring us to our knees. Not simply so that we can feel bad and troubled, but so that we will be troubled enough to flee back to God and find his mercy. I hope that you get that when the sermons may be hard or the passages, more importantly, are hard. The idea is not simply to trouble you. It's to trouble you enough to drive you to God for mercy. Shaphan 
the scribe must have evidently read to Josiah from one of the more threatening passages in the law. Some have suggested, probably rightly, that it was perhaps Deuteronomy chapter 28, in which the Lord promises all sorts of hardships if his people will not obey what is written in the book. And sometimes we need that kind of passage. We need God to do what Christians called in another era a law work. A law work, a work by which the rigors of God's law and the terrors of his judgments against those who refuse to keep it drive us back to the Lord in repentance and for mercy. So that we say with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? We won't say that if we don't hear what the law says to us and if it doesn't come to us sometimes with power and conviction. When we hear it, we must, yes, always turn to Jesus. I must turn your attention to Jesus, even from those difficult texts. But we mustn't shy away from the hard things that are in this book that help us to see how much we need him. After all, it's not those who think they are well whom you find in the urgent care, is it? But those who know they are sick. And maybe for some of us, this tonight is the portion of God's word that we need to rediscover the hard part. Maybe we just need to be more thankful for it, if not rediscover. The hard part, the part that makes us tremble, the parts of the word of God that send us to our knees for mercy from a God who's always glad to give it in Christ. That's the first heading tonight, a book. And I've lingered over it for quite some time. So let's hasten on to portion number two, which is a reformation. A reformation brought about by that book. Now, there was already a great reformation underway even before Josiah found the book. Josiah evidently knew enough of God's law, either by oral tradition or, as Matthew Henry suggests, by a kind of Bible cliffs notes that were perhaps uh, passed around. But whatever the reason, he, he knew enough of the law to go ahead and enact a number of very vital reforms back in verses 3 through 13. But there was still much that needed to be done, much of which Josiah was apparently now becoming aware as the book was read to him. Josiah was just like many a Christian today, aware of a number of important biblical truths, and yet really quite ignorant of certain other things that are in the Bible. But when someone began reading to him the parts of which he was ignorant Josiah's response was quite admirable. I wonder if this is our response when we find something in the Bible that we didn't realize before, and it's perhaps difficult to come to realize it if we accept it as quickly and as readily as he did. When he found something in the Bible that had been left undone, he set right to work immediately remedying it. And I want to show you that now, beginning in verse 29. Then the king sent... And gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people from the greatest to the least. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant written in this book. Moreover, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand with him. 
So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Josiah removed all the abominations from all the lands belonging to the sons of Israel and made all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. Throughout his lifetime, they did not turn from following the Lord God of their fathers. Then Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover animals on the 14th day of the first month. He set the priests in their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of the Lord. He also said to the Levites, who taught all Israel and who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It will be a burden on your shoulders no longer. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. Prepare yourselves by your father's households in your divisions according to the writing of David, king of Israel, and according to the writing of his son Solomon. Moreover, stand in the holy place according to the sections of the father's households of your brethren, the lay people, and according to the Levites by division of a father's household. Now, slaughter the Passover animals, sanctify yourselves, and prepare for your brethren to do according to the word of the Lord by Moses. Whatever was left undone by his initial reforms, Josiah, when he found it in the book of the law, did it. So he hears and begins to hear what's in this book, and he sets out on an even greater reformation. He calls all the elders to himself in verse 29, and indeed a much larger crowd gather than that in verse 30. And what did Josiah do when they gathered? Did you hear it? He read to them, verse 30, all the words of the book of the covenant. And then he entered into a covenant with the Lord, verses 31 and 32, that he and his people would obey God's law from here on out. And then he went about even further cleansing the lands round about him that had once belonged to the sons of David, but long since split off. Even there, he tore down the idols and told the people to worship God. And he had the ark permanently moved, verse 3, chapter 35, to its rightful resting place inside the temple of the Lord, and he put the priests in their right offices to serve in the house of the Lord. Verse 2, and perhaps most memorably in chapter 35, Josiah reinstituted the Passover festival along biblical lines. And I'm not going to read to you the details of that Passover meal. You can go back and read them later in verses 7 through 19, but suffice it to say, it was a grand event. Over 37,000 sheep were offered up as Passover lambs. And people came from all over the kingdom and even from the remnant of the previously estranged ten tribes, northern tribes of Israel, the people came to celebrate this feast to the Lord in Jerusalem. And so great was the celebration that we're told in verse 18. There had not been celebrated a Passover like it in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. Nor had any of the kings of Israel celebrated such a Passover as Josiah did with the priests, the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now that's an interesting sentence there, verse 18. It's an important sentence. Because what it seems to be saying is that what was so extraordinary about this particular Passover was not necessarily what happened, but what was extraordinary, verse 18, was that so many people showed up for it. Did you see that? 
the priests, the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's the explanation for why this was such an extraordinary Passover. All these people showed up. Now, that was supposed to happen every single year, according to the book of Exodus. All the males of Israel were supposed to appear before the Lord for the Passover every year. But here in the days of Josiah, when they actually did so, comment is made that such a thing had not happened since the days of Samuel, not even in the days of the kings, any of them, including David, apparently, including Hezekiah, who was a good king. There was never a Passover like this where the people came like they were supposed to. That's important, and that leads me to think that like the temple itself, the Passover had long fallen into significant neglect. It doesn't seem to have been forgotten or ignored altogether, but it was not remembered and participated in with anything like the national commitment that was required. And I say to you that this was quite a feat then, getting all these people to Jerusalem who hadn't been used to doing so. It was one thing for Josiah and his agents to go out from Jerusalem and to begin tearing down the idols and busting up all the statues and the altars and so forth. But it was quite another thing to get thousands of people to come into Jerusalem and to enjoy the blessings of the Passover. But ultimately, it wasn't Josiah that did it, was it? It was God working through the book. And the same can be said of the Protestant Reformation. Much of Northern Europe was turned right side up. Biblical patterns were put back in place that hadn't been seen for centuries. And Luther and Calvin and Tyndale and all the clergy of Europe couldn't have done it on their own. But God did it by the power of the book, once again put in the hands of his people. And Luther said as much in his own colorful way, quote, Take me, for example. I opposed indulgences and all papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. And that is perhaps one of the greatest lessons of King Josiah's life as well. These things happen because Josiah found and disseminated the words of the book, the power of the word of God. That's the lesson of Josiah's life. He began to reform the people of God even before he knew the book. But when he found it, when the word of God was opened up into his life and when he read it, to his people in chapter 34, verse 30, revival and reformation swept across the land and even across the borders into the northern tribes. And this is what's needed in our own day, a return to this book. And it needs to begin in us. We need to be people of this book. We need to pray for other churches in this land and for missionaries who take Christianity to other lands that the book... The book, the book will be central to everything that we do. We need to pray that our fellow evangelicals will see through the mere soap bubbles of entertainment, which are hollow and which really just reflect back to us our own character in the mirror. 
We need to see through those soap bubbles and pop most of them and fix our corporate attention instead back on the book. We need to pray that worship services in our land will never fail to have significant reading from this book, that our sermons will grapple seriously with the pages of this book, that our songs will be lovely to us, not first of all because of the tunes in which they come to us, but because of the truth they retell from the book. We need in our private and family devotions always to give first place to God's book. And we need not think that our neighbors will be saved simply by seeing our good example, but we need to open to them the words of this book. I did nothing, Luther said. The word did it all. And if we will continue to open this book, and if the Holy Spirit will come and open our ears to truly hear it, it can be just the same today. I did nothing. The word did it all. Now, there's one last episode in Josiah's life, and I want us to consider it briefly before we're through. A book, a reformation brought about by that book, and then thirdly, in a slightly different direction, we need to see a bittersweet end. A bittersweet end, verses 20 through 27. After all this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to make war at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to engage him. But Necho sent messengers to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, O king of Judah? I am not coming against you today, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God who is with me, so that he will not destroy you. However, Josiah would not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to make war with him. Nor did he listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to make war on the plain of Megiddo. The archer shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in the second chariot, which he had, and brought him to Jerusalem, where he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Then Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah, and all the male and female singers speak about Josiah and their lamentations to this day, and they made them an ordinance in Israel. Behold, they are also written in the lamentations. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his deeds of devotion as written in the law of the Lord and his acts first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Now if you have a bulletin tonight, you'll see in the order of service that I originally was going to call this section of the sermon a sad end because it is a sad thing that happened to Josiah. Sad that he died Sad that he died so young, still only 39 years of age, and especially sad that he died in one sense needlessly. He was meddling, verse 20, in a battle that was not his own. And the king of Egypt told him as much in verse 21, and the chronicler tells us in verse 22 that Necho's warnings were, quote, from the mouth of God. But Josiah wouldn't listen, and it's sad to see a man who lived so well come to his death in a headstrong attempt, apparently, at bravado. 
And Josiah is therefore a reminder that even the most mature, even the most committed among us can sometimes make really foolish decisions. Josiah is a reminder, too, to listen to wise counsel, even if it sometimes comes from unexpected sources. And Josiah is a reminder, most of all, of the sin of pride and the dangers of it. And so I say there is certainly a sense in which we could call Josiah's death sad, even bitter. But as I looked further into this passage, I determined that the king's death was better described not just as bitter or sad, but as bitter sweet. One reason, of course, is that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, Psalm 116. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, even if near the end of their life they can be found making foolish decisions. Notwithstanding his pride at the end, Josiah did know the Lord. Josiah did love the Lord. Josiah did belong to the Lord. And therefore, when he died, his death was precious to the Lord, and he went to be with the Lord. And that is sweet. And it's sweet that the people of Israel knew that their king was godly, and they lamented him Because of it. But that's not the reason I changed my mind about the title of this heading. The reason I changed my mind is that it seems to me that while on the human level Josiah's death was too soon, and on the human level Josiah's death should never have been, yet in the divine plan of God, Josiah died, quote, early for a good reason. Because do you remember what the prophetess told him when Josiah sent messengers to her in distress over Judah's disobedience to the law of God? Do you remember what she said? She sent word to the king saying, first of all, in effect, it's too late for Judah and Jerusalem. It's too late to avert God's judgment against them. But as for Josiah himself, she sent these words in verses 27 And 28, chapter 34, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace so your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants." Your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. Now we may wonder whether Josiah died in peace as Huldah said that he would or whether he forfeited that blessing by his headstrong entry into battle with Egypt. But he certainly did die as the Lord promised before judgment fell, didn't he? He died before his son was carried away to Egypt He died before Nebuchadnezzar took another one of his sons away to Babylon and raided the house of God, which Josiah had repaired. And of course, Josiah died before his people were dragged off into exile. He was only 39 years old when he died, and it was only 22 and a half more years before the exile. So had Josiah lived to the age of 67, let's say, which is how old his grandfather was when he died, had Josiah lived to the age of 67... He may have lived to see all of those horrible events. Maybe he, instead of his son Zedekiah, would have been the one to see all of his sons slaughtered before his eyes and then have his eyes gouged out immediately following that event. And of course, had he lived to that 
normal age, 67. Had he not died from his wounds at the Battle of Carchemish, he himself would have quite possibly been among those who were carried off into exile. But by God's providence, he saw none of that. And so I say that, yes, it was a bitter way for him to die from a human perspective. And even from God's perspective, it was bitter that Josiah died in a headstrong rush of bravado. But it was sweet that the Lord kept his promise and that Josiah did not live to see such evil days as were coming upon God's people. And I hope that's an encouragement to you. The twists and turns of our lives and our journeys often leave us with bitter tastes in our mouths. Rightfully so. And many times those bitter tastes are of our own making. But God has a way of making bitter things sweet. God has a way of fulfilling his purposes in and through all the things which, when looked at from our perspective, we would probably go back and change. God is working even then. He is doing sweet things even when we are experiencing and sometimes doing bitter ones. And, of course, the greatest proof of that comes from the bittersweet death of Josiah's greatest descendant, doesn't it? There was another king who, from a human perspective, died all too soon. There was another king whose death was bitter to those who lived through it, whose death was lamented by those who lived through it. There was another king whose death is bitter even as we read it at this distance. As with Josiah, there is a sense in which King Jesus' death should not have been. Not like Josiah because of his own sins, but because of the sins of others, he died. And there's a sense in which it should not have been. There's a sense in which, from a merely human perspective, we could say the young King Jesus should not have died like that. He should not have died so young. He should have not died in blood. Indeed, King Jesus should not have died at all because he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. In all those senses, Jesus' death was bitter. But oh, when we look more closely at the story, as we've done with Josiah tonight, when we read further into the annals, we are reminded that the king died precisely as the Lord had planned. And this king... Jesus laid down his life in blood, not so that he wouldn't have to live to see the great judgment that God is soon to bring about. This king laid down his life in judgment so that his people might not live to see the judgment of God. And so, yes, the death of the young king Jesus is bitter. But to us who believe in his name, to us who have tasted the kindness of the Lord, it is also sweet. And so it will be with your death if you belong to the Lord. And so it will be with all the bitter in your life. Trust in the Lord who makes bitter things sweet.